Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and thank you for joining for tonight's class, Song of Vengeance. This is our 51st episode in the study of the tractate, the Masechet, the Talmud that speaks about Purim. It's called Megillah, and we are going to be continuing our studies of the Megillah through the prism or view of the sages of the Talmud. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge tonight's sponsorship, which I believe is anonymous. It's being done in gratitude to Hashem and for a continued Rufu Shlema. It's a very, very, very special boy. His name is Shmuel Yisrael ben Chanasara. Hashem should grant him a complete healing, and he should have a long, happy, and fulfilled life in Davar. Nothing is beyond the purview, the possibilities of Hashem's hands. So, may everything go in an open, overt, and revealed good in the best way possible. And of course, as we study tonight, and we speak about enemies of the Jewish people and Jewish people emerging from dangerous situations. I'm sure all of us are thinking about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and perhaps in other countries where their life might be threatened as well. The guardian of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. And there will be good news in Mitzvah Hashem. So let us begin. We're on page Tet Zion Amud Beis. Page 16, side B. And I'll remind you that if you have any questions, you're welcome to post it. I'm looking at the screen. I occasionally read the comments, and I will try to respond in real time. So tonight's class like so many of the other Gemara classes, began for me in an entirely perplexing fashion. I, I actually couldn't make heads or tails of the Gemara. I mean, I, I know what the Gemara said, but it didn't seem to make any sense to me. More than anything else, the fact that it's inserted in the midst of the Gemara's exposition of verses of the Megillah. These verses are scripture, biblical verses. 
they're written in pointedly oblique language. It's because they contain many, many, many different ideas and layers of meaning. As I've shared so many times with you, when we talk about nevuah, prophecy, Torah, which is dictation, written with Holy Spirit from Hashem, we're talking about something which has application for eternity, forever. And as such, it's never going to be a simple read. So the Megillah has to be studied, like all of Torah. And the Gemara, the pages of the Talmud, that devote themselves to the sermonics or expositions of the sages, have taken us through specific verses, highlighted what seems to be anomalies, grammatical inaccuracies, a, a lack of particular meaning or importance and the Gemara analyzed and the Gemara revealed but today we are going to view take a look at a few verses of the Megillah but I realize there's no exposition here whatsoever there's exposition in the verses or in the lines of Gemara prior that was last week's episode and then there was light and lots of other things entirely oblique verse what does it mean they had light and joy and gladness well, what, what is that an honor okay we spent well over an hour analyzing what that might possibly mean we talked about in previous episodes the Gemara's introduction of deep history the beginnings of the story of Purim, which takes us all the way back into the, the country called Egypt and the dispute between Jacob's sons and their reconciliation. One of the points that I tried very hard to make was that there is an anomaly in the Megillah. There is a verse that doesn't seem to belong here. And that's why the Talmud is introducing this background to us. But now the Gemara is going to talk about rules of the reading. Here's how you should read the Megillah. Well, let me tell you a little secret. There's actually a focus on that much later on in this tractor. It talks to us about two people reading the Megillah at the same time. Can many people read the Megillah at the same time? It would seem that what we're about to learn today, which are instructions for reading, reading the Megillah, belong there. And yet, here we get instructions on reading and writing. We get no commentary on the actual verse. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on here? And it is as, isn't as if the Gemara kind of turned a corner and has a new focus because when we're finished with these rules, we go right back to analyzing the specific verbiage, the syntax, and more lessons, more ideas, 
more meaning is going to be extrapolated. So what is this? And then the rules that were being introduced to seem so positively strange. Why is that even a, a part of the Megillah reading? So we're going to learn, learn this well. And once we learn it well and once we understand it together, you'll be amazed. This is going to blow the top off something that otherwise nobody seemed to discuss. And in the end, although it's about rules and regulations, it is answering the strangest of anomalies. <laughs> the most unusual part of the Megillah writing. So, let us begin to study. I hope that you'll stay with me now. They're having difficulty with the volume in the classes. Um, I don't know if something changed. I, I, I do know that there was somebody here who was tweaking things. Crank it up. I'll try to talk louder. I'm sorry, guys. This is the best I can do. So the Gemara says, after we finish reading about Can you hear, guys? Let me know. After the Gemara talks about that, we go into the ninth chapter of the Scroll of Esther. And there we hear about the day it arrived. That was the day that was slated for the genocide of the Jewish people. What happened? Ha. Everything was turned inside out. With a new and a second decree having been sent out amongst the entirety of the province, the Jewish people rose up in self-defense and aggressively went after their enemies. The fear of Am Yisrael, of the Yehudim, had fallen upon all of our enemies. The rank and file of military and governmental leadership was in awe of Mordechai. And the Jewish people defended themselves with great bravery and stunning success. And then, in the city called Shushan, there were bigger problems. Bigger problems because there were bigger enemies. This was Haman town. And in Haman's town, despite the fact that Haman had been hung, and according to most opinions, gibbeted, as in left hanging. A horrific reminder to anybody who would stand in the way of the king, or so Ahasuerus saw it. It was also something that continuously ground on the nerves of Haman's children, his extended family, and his supporters. Now Haman was a man who he was probably the first neo-Nazi. And he had a little army underneath him. Hundreds of people. 
We'll learn in the Megillah that there was 500 stormtroopers, very prominent individuals, commanded by none other than ten of Haman's sons themselves. And they were very influential people. They were media darlings, stars. They had the power of the pen, and they weren't afraid to use the sword as well. Each of Haman's ten sons commanded a squadron, if you will, of a troop of 50 sworn enemies of the Jewish people, skinheads, Amalekites. They burned with hatred and with a desire for vengeance. The Jewish people of Shushan were actually quite afraid. The Mepharshim, the commentaries on the Megillah, talk to us about two parts of the Ir Shushan, Shushan town, and then Shushan Habira, the capital district. Mordechai lived in the capital district. This would be perhaps like in certain national capitals where you have diplomats, parliamentarians, ambassadors. It wasn't exactly so much of a local population. But in Shushan town, or the city of Shushan, there were no-go neighborhoods for Jewish people. And Jewish people were tormented in the streets of Shushan for months on end. There's a medrash that describes in detail of a Jew going to just buy something in the supermarket and he would be accosted by a member of the mob who would laugh in his face and say, why bother buying food and keeping body and soul together? You'll be slaughtered, all of you. They abused children, women. It was terrible. Although the king had rescinded the decree formally by introducing a secondary decree, the first decree never actually went away. On the 13th day of Adar, which is the day that was slated for genocide of the Jewish people, Am Yisrael, the Jews of Shushan town, took refuge on the streets of the capital. There they believed Ahasuerus' soldiers, at least, would maintain law and order if the neo-Nazi mobs got loose. There Mordechai and his coterie of followers and disciples lived. To their shock, the stormtroopers went right into Shushan capital. And then a pitch battle ensued. As the Rebbe once said, we have detailed reportage of how many casualties on the enemy side, but not a single casualty reported on the Jewish side. And the Rebbe elaborates on this and says, clearly, an extraordinary miracle had unfolded and the casualties were one-sided. Only the neo-Nazis died. And then the Megillah tells us that the sons of Haman were hung. All ten of them. So the Gemara starts talking about this. 
the ace parshandoso. Parshandoso is the first one of Haman's sons who I mentioned. Aseres b'nei Haman. Straight through, there's a list, a litany of names, and then it concludes with the word Aseret b'nei Haman, the ten sons of Haman. Omar So a sage by the name of Ada, who lived in the Israeli city Jaffa, or at least came from Jaffa, he said, I received the tradition that Aseret b'nei Haman, including the word ve'aseret, and some question whether or not that word actually belongs there. It has to be read in one breath. Surely if you've been to a show for the reading of the Megillah, you know that the Balkora takes a deep breath and he quickly reads through the list without taking a breath in between. You might also remember that before the Balkorah does it, everybody does it quietly. Even those who aren't looking inside a kosher Megillah but following along in a printed version. So the question is my timing. Why do we do this? Before we go on to the Gemara's reason as to why we do it, I want to share an interesting halachic detail. If the Balkorah is supposed to read it in one breath, one, let him read it in one breath. Why do we all read it in one breath? So the Rugged Shavar Gohan said, <laughs> simple, the Balkorah can read the Megillah on your behalf because the mitzvah is Shmiah. You have to hear the story. But this part of the story has to be read in one breath. There's a one breath element to that, and that can't be accomplished by virtue of hearing. It's not an audible thing. That's a verbal thing. That's a lungs and oxygen thing. And that, nobody can do for you. Only you can do that for yourself. And so, the point then is, when a person is going to try and fulfill the mitzvah of Megillah, there is an element of the reading that can't be fulfilled by listening. It has to be fulfilled by verbalizing, chanting, saying the words in one breath. Why? I might add that there is no other reading that we, the Jewish people, do. And we do lots of readings, Torah readings. There is no other reading in which we make a point reading it a certain way. It's always a Torah reading where the Torah is being read by somebody. That individual acts as a shaliach, as an agent on behalf of everybody else in the congregation. And that's how the mitzvah is fulfilled. The Megillah reading is the only reading that has this shortness of breath element in, introduced to it, or this one breath reading. Why? Good question. That's actually what the Gemara says. My timer. What is up with this deep, taking a deep breath and reading through the names of Haman, Haman's sons? What does it even mean? 
Who cares about Haman's sons? So there were some bad people who lived like two and a half thousand years ago. Well, whoopee-doo. I know bad people living today. I need to say names of bad people who once walked the face of the earth. I can say names of bad people who live today. Right now. What is going on here? It's a fair question. So the Gemara says, you know why this is important? Because Kulhu Bahadi Hadodi Nafku Nishmasayu. Because all of those ten sons of Haman died at the same time. Their souls, if you want to call it that, the breath of life left their body at once. I'm like, what? Their demonic souls left their bodies at the same time. Well, really? Who cares? What if one gasped and died a moment later? Who would know the difference? To whom would it make a difference? We have this idea that Hashem doesn't do miracles for no reason. Why make a miracle like that? Why is it important for us to commemorate this miracle? It's like an element of the miracle that can't be commemorated, that can't be observed, that can't be absorbed by reading the Megillah. No. This you have to experience. Don't hang yourself for anything, but read all the names and lose your breath so that you'll know that that they all died at exactly the same time. Seriously? What in heaven is that supposed to mean? In other words, my first question was, I don't even know why the Gemara is telling this to us here in the midst of, this is like a, a you know, piece of Gemara after piece of Gemara, episode after episode after episode. We've been learning this for a couple of, quite a few classes now, 50 classes. It's been an analysis of analysis, analysis, words, scripture, sentences, syntax, lack of verbiage. Words added, omitted, grammar that seems out of whack. Uh, and, and, and everything has a lesson, and everything has deeper meaning. And then there were things which were related to the story or the verses of the Megillah. We got introduced to that too. This has nothing to do with understanding the Megillah. This is a rule. It's a rule about reading the Megillah. This is not the place where the Talmud discusses the rule. That's my first question. By the way, nobody asks this question because it's so obvious. The answer must be so obvious. My second big question is, well, what exactly are we commemorating? Forget that it shouldn't be here. This should have been written somewhere else. Why did 
the editors of the Talmud insert this rule right here. What, what is the rule? The Gemara itself is puzzled by the reason for this. What is the Gemara's answer? Because they died at once. So what? Incidentally, the Chatam Sofer in Teres Moshe famously asks, how could you even say that? Like, how is that even possible? He doesn't seem to subscribe to the miraculous nature of this event. The Ben Yehiyada's approach is, this was a miracle. Well, what, what difference does that make, though? Why is it important? And then it gets even stranger. And I'm going to come back to the Khatam Sofer and the words of the Ben Yehiyada and introduce to you a fascinating teaching from the Rebbe's father. But first, let's continue. The Gemara then says, well, you know, uh, on this subject, Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan said, Vov, the Vayizasa, you mentioned Parshandasa, Let's talk about the last one, the tenth son, Vayazasa, the Vav of Vayazasa. Sorich lemimtecha. It's got to be elongated, pulled, made more prominent, focused on. It's got to be, it's got to be bizikifa, more upright. More prominent. You know, you know how prominent? It's got to be so prominent that it should be Kimordia de Libros, like the uh, oars that were used in the river Libros. So, you know those images you see of um, the gondolas in Venice? And you have those gondola taxis. And, 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 and they, you know, they're like the oars people. They like move it along with the oars. So part of the oars is like moving the gondola along, but they also like kind of keep it away from the wall because those are their narrow streets or canals in Venice. So they keep like pushing stuff away, you know, like to... And then sometimes the canals are shallow, sometimes they're deeper. And, and the gondola driver, they probably have a name, they, they use this oar. They're very deft with this oar. I, I, I imagine in my mind that the river Libros was kind of like this, this Libros River. I couldn't find it. I didn't, I didn't succeed in my Google searches, but it, it must have been something like that. I've seen some of the Mepharshim say that it was a, uh, a river that was of, of varying heights. So there was a long oar, and they could know how high or low the water was at a certain point, or there was rocky edges, and they had to stay away from the rocky edges. So it wasn't a regular oar. It was a, like a long oar. An oar that was used not only to move things along, to glide along the water, but also to stay away or navigate the depth. Stay away from the sides and navigate the depth. Now, I have to tell you this very funny expression. The big vav should be like, like an oar. Let me tell you why it's a very funny expression. Because I'm going to soon share with you in the Shulchan Aruch it says that, that we have a large vav. And there are actually three opinions as to what this means. 
what, why don't we? It's long, elongated vav. You know what that means. The Rishonim have three different opinions as to what this means. And they said, it has to be like an or. Well, okay, just make a long vav. So here's the thing. As we've discussed in the past, in Scripture, say, the writing of the Sefer Torah, there are three sizes or three fonts that are used. I'll say it in its Aramaic terminology. Oisi is Beninus, Oisi is Ravravus, and Oisi is Zeirus. Ravrava. Ravrava is Aramaic for like large, big. Zeira is Aramaic for tiny. Beninit is Aramaic for in between. In plain English, large font, average font, small font. We have a tradition that certain letters in the Torah should be written with large font. The first letter of the Torah, Bereshit, has a large base. Most of the letters in the Torah are written with average font. Some of them are written with tiny font. For example, the third book of the Torah, Leviticus, or Vayikra, opens with the word Vayikra, and God called lovingly to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's a language that denotes love, tenderness, endearment, that God cherishes the person he's speaking to. The word Vayokor, conversely, means God happened upon. It indicates a sense of randomness haphazardness, almost discomfort. Like uh, something inappropriate. So Moshe Rabbeinu was very humble. And he didn't want to draw attention to himself. And he didn't want people to speak about how lovingly God would call to him. So he didn't, he didn't want the word Vayikra to be written with a large Aleph. He was content with it to say Vayokor. Vayakar, incidentally, is how God appears to the arch-evil prophet Bilam. So, to convey the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu, we have a tiny Aleph. So it says Vayikra, and he lovingly called to him, but when you look at the word, you first see Vayakar, because the Aleph is small. That's just for example, one of the things we are aware of. We know why it's written with small or large letters. Some of these things we know, some we don't really know. And whatever we know, there's more. The large bays in the beginning of the Torah, that's an emphasis that there are two things that the whole world was created for. Bereshit bara, in the beginning of creation. What are the two things? For the Torah and for the people who would be given the Torah. So it's a large base. Now, the Megillah also has this oral tradition, prophetic tradition, of certain letters that have to be written large or small. This is not the first time the Talmud is telling us about a large or small letter. So, just say, large letter. No, he says, no, not large letter, elongated letter. Oh, elongated. I wonder what that means. Above elongated. You know what above is, or... You know, Google it to find out what does the Hebrew letter Vav look like. So an elongated Vav means a long Vav. Well, then it would look like an 
Nun sofit, an ending nun. Okay, there's a way to distinguish it. You make it the precise shape of vav, but a large vav. Maybe the Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara doesn't say make a large vav. Gemara says, elongate it like the oars of the watercraft on the Libros River. Hey, it's got to be an easier way to say this. This is not the only large letter in the Torah. So just say that. Say it. A large letter. It's like, you know, a person wants to scratch his ear. He's like reaching over to scratch his left ear with his right hand. Say it straight. Like, what is the issue? And incidentally, we have a huge dispute amongst the Rishonim what this means. We have three possibilities. For example, in the Teisvis Arash, it says that elongation, like an or, is not talking about the way the Vav is written. It's talking about the way the Vav is enunciated. So just like an or is used to push off or to keep things away, you have to make sure vayizosa, there's a vav. Stick them with a vav, you know. That's what Tzitzvah says. You have to raise your voice. But it's not a regular raising. It's not just a, lo- a, a higher decibel. It's not just a louder voice. It's, a, it's an enunciated clarity. Vayizosa. The Ran, Rabbeinu Nisan says something very similar. He says you have to you have to not only a, a, say it, you have to elongate the sound. Vaizoso. Sp- spell it out. Speak it out. Enunciate it like a long oar. The Ran also says you have to make it larger in the way it's written. It's both. In the commentary of the Rush himself, it says you have to write it as a large letter. So the Ran, Rabbeinu Nissen, says to Rabbeinu Usher, I don't understand. If this is one of the large letters of the scripture, we have a list of large letters. Vav Vayazasa is not amongst them. I would tell you, of course it's not amongst them. Because it's not a large letter. It's an elongated letter. And pray tell, what is the difference between a large letter and an elongated letter? Good question. So the Ran says, a typical Vav, the Vav is like a, a head, so to speak. There's the top of the Vav, which is perfectly horizontal. And then it comes down on the side, and it's got a leg coming down the side. And it comes to a point. He says, instead of making the Vav perfectly horizontal, you have to make the top of the vav reaching up. Reaching up like this. It's not a vav like this, flat. It's a vav that looks like this. It's an odd-looking vav. So the vav goes like an oar. So it's not, it's got to be written differently. It has to be framed differently. What, what is this? Really, what is this? So we have these different interpretations. It's an audible thing. It's a size thing of how it's written. Or no, it's the way it's written. 
Now, when we look in the Shulchan Aruch, it says uh, quite clearly that, that this is the way that it has to be written. <laughs> <coughs> we don't have the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch. But the Shulchan Aruch doesn't say you make a large, a large Vav. In chapter 691 of the Shulchan Aruch, it says, you have to elongate. You have to have a long vav, the vav of Ayazasa. And, and, and the commentaries say, well, hmm. some say this means written, and some say it means audible, the way you read it. Not necessarily the sound, though. It's the way you read it. So the Sharatziyin tells us, the Chavetz Chaim brings down, and again, we don't have the Alter Rebbe's but he says, ultimately, you have to write the Vayezasa with a large Vav. That is the custom. That's the custom. Today we follow, he says, not like the Shita of the, of the, of the Ran, Kedasa Oimrim, Avav and it is considered amongst the large letters of the Aleph base. That's what the Sharetzian says, and to the best of my knowledge, this is what all Jewish people do today. So, <laughs> if it was just a large letter, why did the Gemara just say it was just a large letter? And why did the Rishonim have to dispute this? By the way, what is this about? Like, Why do we need a large vav? The Gemara asked the question. So the Gemara says, hmm, some mice with a vav, like an or. We don't even know what it means. My timer. What's the reason? And the Gemara says, oh, reason. You know why it has to be elongated, be that in its enunciation, manner of writing, or size? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Kulu bechad zekifa is the kifu. Because they're all hung one long gallows. Wow. Really? All ten sons of Haman were hung on a common gallows. Well, I say, whoopee-doo. You know, dead is dead. What's the difference if they're hung on one gallows or ten gallows? And if you wanted to make an impact, ten hanging gallows would be better than one hanging gallows. I don't even know what difference it makes. Clearly, it makes a difference because it influences everything from the size, shape, or sound of the Megillah. You have to write this Vav. You have to say this Vav. You have to, you have to make this Vav different because it's really important for you to know that they were hanging on a common gallows. I, I don't really get that. Who cares? What difference does it make? Oh, by the way, what is it doing here? This Gemara is telling us about the verses. Anomalies in the verses, strange things in the verses, syntax that seems off in the verses, delving into things, revealing the profundity, the secret codes, the deeper messages. This is a halacha about writing the Megillah. By the way, we do have a section of this tractate that talks 
about. Exactly that. How you write a Megillah. So, why wouldn't this be included in the halachas, in the rules that talk about how you write the Megillah? Instead, it somehow got inserted by the editors of the Talmud in the midst of the delving into the details of how you write the Megillah. And it gets even stranger. Now the Gemara comes along and tells us, Rabbi Hanina, the son of Papa, said, Dorash, Rabbi Shilo, Ish Kfar Tamarta. Rabbi Shilo, oh, he expounded. He was the man of the Tamarta village. He said like this Kol Hashiris, all the songs in the Torah. We have a lot of songs in the Torah. In fact, we have eight songs in the Torah. We have something called the Az Yashir. That's the song at sea. It was led by Moses when the Jewish people went through the Reed Sea miraculously and their enemies were drowned. They sang a song. Moshe led the men, Miriam led the woman. That's the first Shira. Then there's a small Shira. It doesn't really make much of an impact. If you weren't looking for it, you might not notice it. But it is found at the end of the Jewish people's sojourn when a great miracle happened there at the Arnon Gorge. Thousands of crack troops were waiting to rain down a hail of projectiles, hot lead and missiles, to destroy the Jewish people as they go through a narrow mountain pass. There were caves on either side. These formidable bluffs. And there they waited to ambush and annihilate the Jewish people. Did Hashem do it? He scheduled a, a little earthquake. Just enough for the two bluffs, the two sides, to come together and kiss and separate again. As Hashem's providence had it, the caves and the clefts were perfectly lined up with mountain projections. So in every one of these caves, when the two sides kissed, every one of these caves was actually filled with a mountain projection from the opposing side. They came together and then opened up again. One little earthquake. Thousands of terrorists were literally crushed. And the Jewish people are just walking along. Having no clue that the gorge they're walking through was supposed to be their common grave. Until the well that followed them began to bring us in a stream the remains of these very terrorists. Body parts started to show up. And the people realized a great miracle happened here. So what did they do? They sang this song. Last time, Moshe Rabbeinu had to be there at their side. This time, they had learned their lessons well. They knew that they had to sing a song. This is called Shirat HaBe'er. It's one of the songs of Torah. 
Then there's something called Shirat Hazinu. The 32nd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. It's an entire parsha, And it's written in poetic fashion. The poem of testimony, as it's called. Song of testimony. These are the three songs that are documented or written in the actual Pentateuch, or five books of Moses. Then we move into the book of Yehoshua. <coughs> and there is a song of praise that was sung for the kings of Canaan who were wiped out. In the book of Judges, we hear the song that was sung by Devorah, the great prophetess. There is the song which, for the most part, is identical to the 22nd Psalm of the book of Tehillim. It's called Shirat David. It's found in the book of Shmuel. Incidentally, Shirat Devorah and Shirat David are the Haftorah that accompany the biblical reading of Az Yashir. Shirat Devorah accompanies the reading of Az Yashir, which is performed in Parshat Veshalach. That happens during the winter. And then, on the seventh day of Pesach, we read the Shira. And this time, Shirat David is chosen to accompany it. And then we have a shira in the book of Ecclesiastics. In Kohelet, Shlomo HaMelech says, There's a time for everything. That's written like a sonnet, a song. And then there's the Aseret B'nei Haman. These are all scriptural sing-songs or poems. How strange is that? What kind of, what kind of song is that? It's got to be the most uncomfortable song. I mean, that's, that's like, like, like agonizing, terrible sounds. Of the whole Megillah, it's the least melodious part because the person reading the Megillah is trying to race through at breakneck speed to get it down in one breath. There's hardly any melody at all. You run through it. It's a song. What is the song? It's a litany of neo-Nazis. Amalekite names. Monsters who once walked the face of the earth who, thank God, don't walk around anymore. I'm like, what, what kind of song is that? It's a song. No. All the songs are written one way. Gemara says, Kula nichtavois ariach al gabi levena. And ariach al gabi levena is understood in plain English to be <coughs> a half brick above a half brick. An ariach is what's called a half brick, and a levena is called a whole brick. So a riach, a gabe levena, half brick above a whole brick. And there's a dispute of what exactly this means, but on a simple level it means that the shirot are written with a partial line, one-third on one side, one-third on the other, and then it's left empty in the middle. The next line has blank on either side, but the large middle is filled with writing. And then the third line has writing at the beginning of the line, writing at the end of the line. It's empty in the middle. The fourth line is empty at the beginning and end, and the middle, which is the wider part, the full brick, is filled with writing. So it has a, a certain symmetry. 
So all of the shirot are written like that, with one big exception. And that's the shira, the song of vengeance, I called it, the names of Haman's sons, as well as the kings of Canaan. So the names of Haman's sons and the kings of Canaan are written ariach, agabi ariach, half brick above half brick. That's the word ve'eit, ve'eit, ve'eit. They're written like in a line of ve'eits. Small half bricks on one side. And then, on the other side, we got the names. You got funny long names. Pashandosa, Vayizosa, Dalfoin Arsposa. Those are called whole bricks. So we got, on the line, on one hand, we got just little words, just two letters, ve'eis, 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 ve'eis. On the other hand, we have larger letters. And they're lined up that way. And the Gemara says, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what difference does that make? Why would the first one be written in a staggered fashion and the second one be written with the bricks, one on top of the other? So the Gemara says, I'll tell you why. First, the Gemara says, my timer. What's the reason for this? And the Gemara says, Shalai tehei tukuma lamapalasan. They should never recover from their fall. They were brought down. They should never recover again. What? Yeah, you heard. It's written in a way in which they should never recover again. <coughs> I forgot to share with you the words of Rashi. Rashi says, Aseret b'nei homan hazkarat shmotan, the mentioning of their names. V'teva hasmucha achareyan, and the words after. So all has to be read in one breath. Geloimar, nishmatan, naflukeachad. Their souls fell at once. Zakifa, he says, gives us a French word, and he says, betzad echad zelamata mizeh. One above the other. Ariach, the whole brick, that's uh, the half brick, that's the, the, the letter. Levena, that's the chelik shahu kiflayim in achsav. That's... The part that's twice as long as, as the reading. That's the whole brick. So there's two opinions of what this means, whether the empty space <coughs> or the writing. You, you can Google the image. I don't, I'm not, I don't have an image to show you. You, 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 you get the message. Should have had a Megillah to show you a Megillah. And what's the reason for this? Shalai says. There should be no wiggle room. They shouldn't be uh, able to widen their stride, so to speak. If there was bricks on either side, so then they would find a way to get a firm footing, but no bricks on either side. It's just like lined up with bricks, so you just, they just fall down. What the heaven does this mean? Who shouldn't have a Takuma? Who shouldn't recover? People who died? What are you, they're going to come back to life unless the Megillah is written a certain way? But if the Megillah is written this way, oh, that's it. They're never going to get up again. Seriously? What heaven is this talking about? What does it mean? By the way, the weird stuff ends right here. The Gemara says, okay, let's go back to looking at the verse. And Rabbi Avo starts to expound on the verses of the Megillah again. What was this? What was this three successive rules 
about how the Megillah should be written and read. The first one is how it's supposed to be read. It's not even part of the Megillah reading. Everybody has to read it in one breath. By the way, the Toysavah says, This is to begin with, the, way, the ideal way. If you didn't do it, oh, it still works. So we take a look in the Shulchan Aruch, and the Shulchan Aruch says, chapter 690, subsection 17, Mina kol Yisrael, it is the meaning of Yisrael, sorry, uh, subsection 15. You have to say the ten sons of Haman, all in one breath. To make known, to broadcast, they were all killed and hung. What does it mean killed and hung? Well, maybe they were gibbeted. There's an opinion they were gibbeted later. So they had to be gibbeted at the same time too. They were hung at the same time. They died at the same time. They got gibbeted at the same time. Now that Amos says, like the words of the Tzaisavis, this is the way it should be to begin with. But, you know, if, if you didn't do it, if you made an interruption, God forbid, between the names of Haman, Haman's sons, so Yatza, you still fulfill your custom. You still fulfill the mitzvah. And he says, to begin with, start from Chomesh Meos Ish, the Es Parshandasa, until Adaseres. So the Maharil, very interestingly, which is the origin of this Minag, that you started not like the Gemara says, Chomesh Meis, the Maharil says that the reason we have to do that is because they were all, so to speak, uh, these ten sons of Haman represented 50 apiece of the 500. He brings down, the Maharil brings down for the Likeach, Taima, the Chomesh, Meis, Ish, Tzichim, Lies, Benishim, Achas. Why do you have to say 500 men? <laughs> the 500 men didn't get killed at the same time. The 10 sons of Haman get hung at the same time. Now you just made life more difficult. Now you said, and no, don't just say the 10 sons of Haman in one breath. Also say, Chomesh, Meis, Ish, 500 sons, 500 people in one breath, 500 Nazis, and this were the names of the 10 sons of Haman. What's going on over here? Oh, he says, Because the 10 sons of Haman, I'm reading from the Minhagi Maharil. Maharil is the forerunner of the Shulchan Aruch of Yaakov Mulin. It's the 15th century. Those ten each had a battalion, uh, I don't know, a squadron of 50 monsters, 50 neo-Nazi killers. And each one says, I'm a Dalfoy man. And the other one said, I'm a Vayazasa man. Their swastikas were unique to their Dalfoyna Spasa and so on and so forth uh, representations. So they were, when you hung the son of Haman, it's like you hung all 50 people. Because he was the iconic leader of, of, the, of, those, of that squadron. What the heck is going on over here? What does this mean? Like, now you have to take even a deeper breath, which I'm having a difficult time doing right now. <coughs> and a deeper breath. And not only say the sons of Haman, but also the 500 people. What does this mean? 
What is this about? Tell you, I was I was like, like baffled. I was like I was like knocking my brains out to try to figure out what in heaven is going on and what what is in this gemara. And then I looked into that chasam sofer that asked the question like, hey, you wouldn't even know if they died at once. You wouldn't even know. Because that's a very unusual answer. And I saw the ben yada, very also unusual kind of answer. And I remember the Taylor teaching of his father. And everything snapped together. It just clicked. So now I'm going to share with you what I think the answer to all this is. I think it's amazing. But anyway. The point is this. None of it's my my teaching. This is all teaching of great tzaddikim. I'm just putting it together for you at the end. I'm going to give you all their teachings. I'm going to explain their teachings to you. And I'm going to snap it together. You know, kind of just make it go live. And I think you're going to love this. Now here's how it goes. The Khatam Sofer says, it is not possible for human beings to be able to measure things with this kind of precision. It's not possible. Why not? Khatam Sofer says, look, let me give an example. <coughs> he actually gives a few examples. I'm going to share with you one of the examples as to how the Khatam Sofer says, it doesn't mean it can't happen. Yeah, God could make everybody die in a millisecond, in a nanosecond. How would you know about it, he says. It's not possible for a human being to measure that. A machine can measure it. So how would they know? In other words, suppose such a miracle happened. Who would know about it? How could they know about it? It's a very interesting uh, piece of Gemara here. It's the bottom of page... Ayin Ches, of page 78. And the Gemara says, it's talking about the laws of divorce. We should never know from such things. So if a couple who is married decides that they're going separate ways, then it's a mitzvah that the division, the separation of these two people who were sewn together in a holy matrimony should take place by virtue of a bill of divorce. It's not a mitzvah to get divorced. It's a mitzvah that if you're getting divorced, it's a mitzvah to do it this way. Big difference. In other words, you're already in the miserable situation. That's when the mitzvah begins. It's not a mitzvah to get divorced. Okay. So how do you get divorced? The answer, the simple answer is, you take a document which is written in a very precise manner. By the way, precious few rabbis actually do this because you have to be a big expert and a lot of things can go wrong with it. Far more rabbis, Baruch Hashem, do weddings than divorces. So a lot, of, a lot of laws, a lot of restrictions, a lot of regulations, a lot of rules written a certain way. And then this document, which is written properly, with all the background in place, has to be given. The husband has to give it to his wife. To be more accurate, he drops it into her hands. He gives it, she gets it. That's how they get divorced. And at that moment, the sacred bond between them dissipates, it's vaporized. It's a spiritual thing. But the physical reality makes that spiritual reality unfold. 
So the Mishnah is talking about um, how, how this could work. The Mishnah says, what if they're standing in a public domain? And he threw the divorce to her. Took the document and threw it. So the Mishnah says, court of law, if it's closer to her, it's Even if she didn't lay her hand on it because it goes into her private space. Court of law, closer to him, that it's in his private space. What if it's mechza al mechza? What if it's right in between? The Gemara says, in that case, migreshes, vein migreshes. She's divorced and she's not divorced. Which means that, on one hand, the halacha would say she's a married woman. Somebody who would, God forbid, be with her would be committing adultery. On the other hand, she's not a married woman. She has no rights of a married woman. She's divorced and not divorced. So the Gemara says, I don't understand what you're talking about. What, what does that mean? How would you know? So the Gemara says, and if you're going to tell me, they also travayu bahadi adodi, that they both came to this place at the same time, and therefore they both had the same, <laughs> so to speak, private domain. And that's why there's a question if it's in his domain or in her domain. Sigmar so says, It's impossible to know with certainty who came where when. It's not possible to know that. Ella, he says, We say it has to be. Somebody had to come to this place first. You can't, they couldn't have come at the same time. So uh, Rav Kahana has a whole teaching that it's exactly, exactly, six feet, by the way, 36 square feet is the private space. It's exactly, so to speak, two squares of 36 square feet, and it's precisely in the middle. But the question was going to be, who arrived there first? Who laid, who staked a claim in that space? And the Gemara says it's, it's not possible to know who came first. You can measure space but you can't measure time. When somebody arrived, when something happened. It happened at exactly the same time. You can't do that. Nobody knows it happened at exactly the same time. So there's this idea that when you come to a space, then you assert a certain like ownership, a certain domain. It becomes your domain. Whoever got there first is their domain. Kamara says that, that you couldn't know. So the Khatam Sofer says, we have a clear ruling in the Gemara that you can't know when something, precise, the precise moment. Can't pinpoint the moment. So he says, based on this Gemara, how is it possible that anybody knew all ten of them died precisely at the same second? How do you know? Maybe there's a, a, a nanosecond difference. It's a very strong question. So the Khatam Sofer offers this incredibly creative, radical answer. He says, they didn't, it didn't happen. That's not what it means. So what does it mean? He says, there is a fascinating verse that's found in the 11th chapter of the prophecies of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. 
So Zechariah Hanavi, the prophet, the world calls him Zechariah. Zechariah Hanavi in the 11th chapter, he sharply criticizes the Jewish people for their faulty leadership, lack of leadership. He really pummels them. And on a literal level, it seems to be speaking about three families of the ruling class. So the Novi says, I removed, I uprooted, took away the three shepherds, in one month. So the question becomes, who are these three shepherds? By the way, they never identified. In the scriptures, they never identified exactly who they are. On, on a literal level, when you study the, the scriptures, the, the verses of Zechariah, it seems to be referring to three ruling class families that Yehu killed in one month. But the Braisa in Mesechat Tanit on page 9 has a different take on it. it it's, this is called Adrasha. It expounds. What does it expound? It says like this. The three shepherds that were taken in one month are referring to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Why is that the three shepherds? Well, the Mepharshim say there is no time in Jewish history when there were three shepherds alive at once. There are different people who are referred to as shepherding the nation, but never three shepherds for the nation. We're oftentimes metaphorized as a flock, and the three shepherds is Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, this amazing shepherd family, two brothers and a sister. So the Gemara says, I, I, I don't know what that means. V'chibi yerech echad mesu, did they die in one month? V'halei Miriam ben Nisan, Miriam dies on, in the month of Nisan, in our tradition, the 10th day of Nisan. V'aharon ba'av, Aaron dies in the month of Av, our tradition is that it was Rosh Chodesh Av, Aleph Av. Umoshe ba'adar, and Moshe and Adar, and our tradition is the seventh of Adar is the day. So the Gemara says, Elo, Melameh, this teaches us. Shinizbatlu shaloish matonois toives, that three beautiful gifts were taken from us, were disbanded. Shenosno al yodom, we received them through these shepherds, and all of them disappeared in one month. What could this mean? So, it's interesting to note that there isn't a clear statement in the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu passes away in the month of Adar. But, we know when the Jewish people entered the land of Israel. They entered on the 10th day of Nisan. Yud Aleph Nisan was the first day in Eretz Yisrael. Yud Aleph Nisan. 
So it says that they mourned Moshe for a month, and then they waited three days, and then they entered the land. Well, if they entered on the 10th, the first day in Eretz Yisrael was the Aleph Nisan. They entered on the 10th of Nisan. And that was the third day after a month. Well, if it's the third day, that's three from seven. If it's three days after Zion Nisan, what day was it? Clearly it was Zion Adar. So what happens is that Miriam, she is the one who provides hydration. It's in the schut and the merit of Miriam that the miraculous well followed the Jewish people through the desert. We still refer to it as Be'era Shel Miriam, the well of Miriam. It was in the schut, the merit of Aaron HaKohen, Aaron the high priest, that the Jewish people were enveloped, encircled with proverbial clouds of glory, climate control, smoothing pathway, protective, these protective walls around them. That was in the merit of Aaron. And the merit of Moshe came the manna. And we know this because after Miriam's death is recorded, there's a water crisis. So it's obvious that the water crisis ensues only after Miriam's passing. For 40 years, there was water. It doesn't take a rocket science to put two and two together. Miriam dies, there's a water crisis. That means it was only there in the merit of Miriam. Ah, but it came back to us through Moshe Rabbeinu. The spirit of Miriam then embodied itself through Moshe. We know that the Jewish people were attacked by the Amalekites, referred to in code by the king of Arad. Why? Because they noticed that something wasn't the same. The clouds of glory were no longer there. Aha! So they attacked. But what is spoken of just before this attack? the passing of Aaron. So what stimulated the attack, what emboldened them, was the loss of the clouds of glory. But the only thing that occurred that could possibly have caused the loss of the clouds of glory was the death of Aaron. Aha! From here we derive that it was the merit of Aaron that the clouds of glory enveloped the Jewish people. Those Anane HaKavod are restored to the Jewish people because the spirit of Aaron comes embodied through Moshe. When Moshe Rabbeinu passes, the manna stops falling, the clouds dissipate, and the miraculous well dries up. Aha! So they lost all at the same time. So the Chatam Sovah says, what does that mean? It means that the spirit of Miriam moves into Moshe. The spirit of Aaron moves into Moshe. And then it's as if they're living through Moshe. And only when Moshe passes, then it dissipates. Like losing three shepherds at once. Because Moshe was all of a sudden not just Moshe. He was Moshe and Miriam. Then he wasn't Moshe and Miriam. He was the spiritual bionic man. He was Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron. And the loss of Moshe was the loss of all three. The Khatam Sofas is something genius. He says, These sons of Haman 
ten suns represent the ten spherot, the spherotic tree, which is the, so to speak, structure. All of existence is structured in this system of ten, called ten spherot, say the teachings of Kabbalah. And there's ten spherot of holiness, and ten spherot of horrible impurity. Dangerous defilement. And what happened was that these ten sons of Haman were not just ten bad guys. They were sorcerers. They were wicked, horrible snakeheads. And what happened when one died, their spirit moved into the next one. And so it was from monster to monster. By the time the last monster had, he had all the ritual impurity, all the demonic forces rolled up in one. And when he was hung, then finally Shushan was cleansed. Our rabbis tell us that one of the ways that Esther knew that the city of Shushan still needed mopping up was because Mordechai, from the time of Haman's decree, lost his ability to intuit, to have spiritual prophecy. Because there was so much impurity in the streets, the atmosphere was dense and blocked the broadcast. And then Haman's children were hung, each representing a, a, a squadron of 50 monsters, and, and there still wasn't clear communication. Esther understood there's something still not right in Shushan. Then she comes back to Ahasuerush and says, we got a problem. we got an issue here. The sages tell us that Mordechai had the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had the, the holiness. It was Jerusalem in exile. And that's they go back to war a second day. And another 300 monsters are eliminated. And all of a sudden, the air is crystal clear, getting a clear broadcast. So that's the meaning of them all dying at once. They didn't die at once. What it means, according to Khatam Sofer. The Ben Yayada says, the Ben Ishchai says like this. He says that the miracle was that the demonic souls left their bodies at the same time. Why? He says, because they were demonic people, and these demonic people represented demonic energy. And therefore, just as the demonic evil energy was slayed and removed. They physically died at the same time because they were powered by this horrible energy. In other words, the Ben Yoda is actually saying almost the same thing, but he's coming at it from a different side. The Khatam Sofer is saying they didn't die at the same time. They don't have to die at the same time because the spirit passed from one to the next. The Khatam Sofer, the, 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 the Ben Yoda is saying, he's saying that they did die at the same time. Because that was symptomatic of a spiritual death, so to speak. When the klipa, when the extraneous, horrible energy was snuffed out, then their physical bodies, their physical existence, died with that as well. So there's this amazing Torah from the Rebbe's father. The Rebbe's father was in exile and he couldn't, he had no paper, he had no pens, he had no sforim. He had three books. This brilliant encyclopedic knowledge of the whole Torah, and he had no food, he had no shelter. It's, it's, it's astounding. He produced enough tiny writing on the margins and the most cryptic letters filling five books. 
four books. And, and it takes out, like, every sentence here is like, a, like packed together. You have to open it up and unaccordion it. And he has this amazing commentary on the Megillah. Amazing. I'm not going to go into it. If you want to hear it in great detail, go to the Megillah class. Not the last one, every last one of them, but the um, execution of justice. I think that was the, uh, that was the name of that. I go through this teaching in detail. But basically, he links Haman to the primordial snake, which is the origin of all unholiness, of all darkness. Now, we, the Jewish people, don't believe in a devil. There isn't, there isn't a separate entity. It's all created by Hashem. Yotzer Orovorechoshech. God creates light and dark, but He created the Satan, the satanic force. And Hashem creates the satanic force and it gets in our way. And its first iteration, its first expression comes with a snake. And then that snake continues to exist within us. Here's an example of what I mean when I say that snake continues to exist within us. There's a verse, he alludes to a verse which is found at the end of Parshas Shmini. It's the third Torah portion in the book of Leviticus. At the end we hear about animals that should not be eaten ritually impure and then we hear about things which crawl on their bellies. And it says that, that the kol hoylechal gachoin, whatever goes on its stomach, on its belly. So what is that? What goes on its belly? So Rashi says, Zenachosh, there's the snake. What's gachoin? Shechia, falling on its belly. Shehilach shach, it's falling lower and lower. What does this mean? It's a beautiful sikha from the Rebbe. The Rebbe says this represents the Yitzhahara. The Gemara tells us in Mesechah Shabbos on page 105 that what is the methodology of the Yitzhahara? Does the Yitzhahara come to somebody and tell him, have an affair? Does the Yitzhahara come to somebody and tell him, kill somebody? Never. The Yitzhahara comes and he does, gets you to do little tiny things. He never comes to Bernie Madoff and says, rip off the whole world? Nah. He says, just lie to one person. You take his money. You tell him to give him back his money later. It's little things. Small little things. One thing leads to the next before you know it. One, one act of dishonesty, one act of deception, another act of deception. You're in the middle of a Ponzi scheme. You can't escape anymore. That's the story of the Yitzhahara. And what is the methodology falling on his belly? The Yitzhahara doesn't slither. He's falling. He gets you to fall. Lower, lower, and lower. And once you're in free fall, that's, you get trapped by the Yitzhahara. So the Rebbe's father says that the word gachoin, that pasuk which shows up in Leviticus chapter 11, is related to the original snake. And this is related to Haman. And he goes through a slew of fascinating verses that link Haman to the snake and to the satan. And Haman's sons. And he says that the answer to this he brings down he says this is the same idea of the long or the long or the long vav because actually the word gachon in leviticus 11 verse 42 is written with a large vav he says the vayazasa the vav of vayazasa it's linked to the vav of gachon of the snake and he talks about on a kabbalistic level what the vav represents and he says, Gimel and Ches. Gimel is three. Ches is eight. Add it up. It's 11. Haman and ten sons hanging from the same gallows. How tall was that gallows? 
50 cubits high, the Megillah says. Gimel and Ches, 11. The Vav represents that very decapitation, so to speak. The removal of this evil, and it ends with a Nun, a long Nun. Nun adds up to 50. That's the wood. That's the gallows. And, and he, he links this from all sides. It's fascinating teaching. I encourage you to watch the, the Megillah class, Execution of Justice, to, to appreciate and understand it better. But here's the point I want to make in what the, the whole Gemara suddenly become clear to me. The issue that the Gemara has is we have this business with part of the Megillah that has to be read somehow different. Why? It's to be read in one breath. What is this about? What does this have to do with the Megillah? What does it have to do with the story of Purim? What's, what's being... It has to be strangely written but also enunciated in a different way. What does that mean? The structure is different. So they shouldn't rise again. What the Gemara is telling us is, my friends, they all were hung on one gallows. They all died at the same moment. That they shouldn't rise again. This is not simply a historical detail of monsters, Nazis who once lived. This is a representation of evil itself. The Megillah is documenting a story that didn't just once upon a time people wanted to kill Jewish people. That event, these monsters, these Amalekites represent the essence of all evil. The story of Purim is the showdown between light and darkness, between good and evil, between life and death, between Kedusha and Klippa, holiness and the polar opposite. Haman represents all that is bad, rotten and evil in this world. Mordechai and Esther represent all that is good and holy. This is the conflict, the face-off of perfect good and perfect evil. And the victory of Purim, which we continue to celebrate until this very day, is far more than just a historic episode that once happened. There's a reason that the Megillah has to be read year after year after year to fulfill the mitzvah. There's a reason we need to celebrate Purim annually. The reason is because the story of Purim is the story of the Jewish people. It is the story of triumph of light over darkness. It is the story of the victory of goodness, of righteousness over evil. The hanging of Haman's sons was not simply a little event where certain neo-Nazis were hung. These were iconic neo-Nazis. Each man represented a squadron of 50 monsters. Each one of these people represented a demonic spirit. Megillah is a holy book. The way it's written in the Megillah has a lot to do with the way these spirits are put down forever. Make sure the Vayazasa is elongated. Know that it is all the same line. It's not disparate events. Why do we mention the names of Haman's children? Why is it even a part of the Megillah that Haman's children? We never heard of them before. These were the people, Rashi tells us, quoting our sages, these were the people that tried and successfully stopped the Beis Hamikdash. This is not a little thing, this is huge. And their death represents the destruction, the slaying of evil. 
And the Megillah has to be read a certain way. And the Megillah has to be framed a certain way. And it's important for us to read it in one breath to understand that this is about the breath of life itself. And in doing so, we destroy the klipa, the ugliness and the evil on the outside. It helps us to destroy the ugliness that we sometimes have on the inside. And that's why it's not a detail in the reading of the Megillah. It's not a detail in the writing of the Megillah. It is an overriding primary theme of the story of the Megillah. And that, I'd like to suggest, is what this Gemara is really all about. I hope you found that up- uplifting and inspirational. I certainly had a, <laughs> a wonderful time figuring out this Gemara, understanding this Gemara, learning all these amazing holy teachings. May we together be united with the spirit of goodness and righteousness for, in the end, that is what shall prevail. In a time when when darkness seems to pervade everywhere, let us remind ourselves and anybody who will listen that in the end, there, there will be light and there will be joy. There will be happiness and glory and honor. We shall prevail. I hope and I pray that this year's Purim will be beyond anything we possibly could have imagined as we will emerge from the current worries and anxieties and fears that the globe is facing, not just with a solution, but please, God, with the coming of Mashiach and the transformation of our world forever. Thank you so much for joining. Please share, like, and get others to subscribe. And let's keep getting a message of Torah and inspiration as far and wide as we can. Thank you again. Laila Tov. Have a good night.